Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. This morning, we're going to be speaking on assurance of salvation, or uh, how you can know that you are a child of God. And this is something that I think most Christians struggle with at some point in their life. Many of us struggle with it quite a bit. And uh, don't feel bad about that. I think it's very normal. I grew up in Christianity. I grew up in church all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. I had Christian parents. I went to church from the time I was born. And um, I... When I left home at 18, I came to a Bible college, and I've just spent my entire life immersed in Christianity, and yet I had doubts of my salvation. I think it's a very very normal thing. Uh, I struggled for years, especially from probably the ages of about 8 until 13, really struggled with whether or not I was a child of God. I think part of that was that my understanding of salvation was tied to a prayer that I had prayed as a very young child, and So I thought that assurance of salvation was to be found basically in thinking back to that day and trying to remember the prayer and make sure that I I was sincere, that I prayed it right. And that's that's how I understood assurance of salvation. And so what happened for me is that um, during those years as I was doubting my my salvation, I would repray the prayer. And again, if you grew up in church, this is a normal experience, I think, for most, most kids. You, you pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over, and you feel like, you know, one of these times I'm going to feel saved. Not exactly sure what that's supposed to feel like, but you just still have those doubts. And uh, I, I heard a sermon once as a kid that uh, I thought was going to help, but it actually ended up confusing me a little bit more. The preacher said that the devil wants those who are saved to doubt their salvation. Uh, so that basically they'll be crippled spiritually. So if you're doubting your salvation, you're probably actually saved. And then he said, um, he said that Satan also wants those who are not truly saved to think that they are. Sort of like so they can, they can be tricked into dying without Christ. And so at the time as a boy, this sort of made sense to me. And so I decided that since I doubted my salvation so much, that that must mean that I am truly saved and that the devil's just trying to discourage me. And so as strange as it sounds, uh, my doubts about my own salvation gave me confidence in the fact that I was saved. Until I realized that, according to that logic, the more that I'm feeling confident now that I am a Christian, then that must mean that I'm actually not. (laughs) And so this ended up just confusing me further. I went off to uh, Bible college, and I remember being in a class uh, I don't remember exactly which class it was, but the teacher decided the first day that we're just going to go around and give testimonies. Everybody's going to tell how they, how they came to Christ. And we didn't get through everybody. It was a big class, maybe 100 people in the room. And so we got through maybe 40 or 50 of them. And I was shocked to find that my story was repeated over and over and over. That so many people who grew up in church as children... They, they prayed a prayer when they were young, when they were four, five, six years old, and then when they're 10, 11, 12, 13, they had doubts, and they struggled with assurance of salvation. It's a very, uh, very normal thing. Uh, I remember being surprised in Bible college at, at the amount of students who were in college specifically preparing for ministry at a Bible college. 
that were struggling with assurance of salvation. And I, I'd be there on a Sunday night, and I'd look up in the baptistry, and there's, there's my dorm soup. There's my bus captain. There's somebody that, that I was so certain that they, uh, if anybody would know they're saved, it should be them. I mean, they're, they're a senior in Bible college, and yet they were struggling with assurance. What really surprised me, though, was seeing some of the staff members at the Bible college struggling with assurance of salvation. And, and I remember thinking, the first time that that happened, I remember thinking, how is that even possible? That, that somebody could, could be saved, could grow up. I remember one in particular grew up in a preacher's home, a very well-known preacher, and uh, they had been saved, presumably, f- from a very young age. They went to Bible college, they graduated, and they had been teaching for over 20 years at this Bible college. And yet, one day they realized that they weren't a Christian. And, and I remember seeing the picture of them up in the baptistry and just being so surprised by that. So it is a very normal occurrence that people... Uh, struggle with assurance of salvation. And I think part of that is, uh, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, that, that you have a wrong understanding of salvation. You think salvation is simply praying a prayer and you get your ticket punched and you're good to go. And then uh, if that is the basis of your salvation and that's, that's where your assurance lies, I would say that you're looking in the wrong place. Repentance for me was the missing component in my understanding of salvation. I remember in Bible college reading uh, statements that Jesus would say, like, unless you, rep- unless you repent, you will all likewise perish in Luke 13. And, and that was a shock to me at the time. I had not understood that. I, I thought that if you believed the right things, then you were going to heaven. I remember reading James chapter 2, where, where James makes the point that just believing the right things doesn't make you any more saved than a demon. And that kind of makes sense, because of course the devil knows Jesus died on the cross. He probably watched it happen. He, he understands that Jesus was sinless. He believes all the right things. Satan's doctrine, there's nothing wrong with Satan's understanding of, of doctrine. It's, it, it's the repentance factor that, that was missing in my life. So assurance of salvation, I'm going to stress that if you're looking backwards to an event that happened years ago, then you're basing your confidence and you're standing before God on that. You're looking in the wrong place. So we're going to start in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And I want us to look carefully at this verse to see what it is saying. It, you notice the first few words there, it says, These things have I written. Now I think we need to stop there and ask, what is he talking about? What things are written? Uh, as you can see, if you just look at this verse, it, it comes at the very end of 1 John. So it's, it's sort of like if you were writing a book, in the last paragraph you put in there your purpose statement for the book. So John is saying, I, I wrote this book for this purpose. And we go on to read that uh, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So now he's telling us whose audience is. That he's written the book of 1 John specifically to those who are Christians. Now this is an important point. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. 1 John is not written to tell you how to be saved. It is written to tell you whether or not you are saved. And so you've you got to make sure that you have that clear in your mind, otherwise you'll misinterpret it. Uh, the book of John, it's interesting, uh, John does this a lot with his letters. The, book, the Gospel of John, he ends off his, his letter in uh, chapter 20. He says, these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So the Gospel of John was written specifically to unsaved people, to show them how they can know or how they can be saved. The book of First John, however, is written to Christians specifically. And we see the purpose statement, the rest of the verse, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to those who are already Christians. And he says, I'm writing this to you so that you can have confidence in the fact that you are a child of God. I want you to know that you have eternal life. Now, this verse is 
uh, commonly used when talking about assurance of salvation. Again, this is a verse I, I grew up hearing all the time. Uh, a lot of times when people would witness, they would start off with this verse and say, Here's how you, the Bible says you can know that you're saved, and that's true. However, what, what normally happened is they would say, read this verse, it says you can know that you're saved. Now, let's go flip over to Romans. And that's completely missing the point of what John is saying. He's saying, if you want to know whether or not you have eternal life, read the book of 1 John. That's why these things were written. So, so this, this book of the Bible, as far as I know, it is the only book of the Bible specifically written on the subject of assurance of salvation. So if this is an issue that you struggle with, I would recommend you read 1 John. Read it over and over. Yeah, this is exactly what it is about. Now, if you'll flip back to chapter 1, we're going to walk through uh, the book of 1 John, and we're going to pull out a few uh, passages in each chapter to show that what John's arguments are, or basically what, what his tests are of salvation. He gives several tests that, that you can run, evaluate your life through to know whether or not you're a child of God. We see, uh, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, John says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, speaking of Christ, and declaring to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So the first thing I want to point out here, the word fellowship, uh, there's several ways we're going to see as we go through this that John speaks of salvation. And in this specific verse, he talks about fellowship. Uh, it's, it's not the way that we use the word. Normally when we talk about fellowship, that means we're going to go have a meal together or something. It's, that's not what the word fellowship means in the New Testament. It's uh, basically, we, we could use a word like partnership. It's a relationship that you have. Uh, and so he's saying, this is how you can know if you are in fellowship with God and in fellowship with other Christians. If you're a part of this fellowship of the gospel, as Paul calls it, the way that you can know this is, are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, and true Christians walk in the light. John goes as far as to say that if you say you're a child of God and you walk in darkness, you're a liar. We're going to see some of this language as we continue. John is very, very adamant about this, that, that if you claim to be a Christian that your life should reflect this. We'll, we'll look over to chapter 2. We'll see a little bit of a similar statement. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. And again, this is a, a kind of a code way of talking about salvation. Hereby we do know that we know him. And how do, how do we know? If we keep his commandments. Verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. Again, a very strong statement by John. The truth is not in him. Verse 5, But whoso keepeth his word... In him verily is the love of God perfected, and hereby know we that we are in him. So this is just very straightforward. This is how you can know if you are in Christ. Do you keep his commandments? And he says, if you claim to be a Christian, you don't keep his commandments, then John says you're a liar. And we're going to see as we go through this, the same passages or the same themes are repeated over and over again in each passage that your life reflects whether or not you are a true child of God. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. He that saith, he is in the light. Again, this is talking about a Christian, someone who says or claims to be a Christian, says they're in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. So, in verse 9, we're given another test. It's a little bit different. It's not exactly 
simply walking in holiness or keeping the commandments of God, but specifically your love for other Christians. John says if, if someone's in the light or if they're a Christian, then they're going to love their brother in Christ. And if you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. Again, it's, it's basically John calling this person a liar again. He's saying don't, don't say that you're in the light and then hate your brother. First uh, John 2, verse 29 if you know that he is righteous, speaking of Christ, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And again, born of him is a way of talking about salvation. So very clearly he's saying that you can know whether or not you're born of God if you are living a righteous life. Everyone who, who does righteousness is born of him. In other words, he's saying God's children have God's DNA. When we get saved, we're regened, the Bible says, regenerated. We're given a new nature and that new nature is demonstrated by our life of righteousness. Flip over to chapter 3 of 1 John, and we will start in verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested, speaking of Christ, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him, verse 6, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth his brother. So John says several times in these verses that someone who commits sin is not a Christian. Now, we need to clarify. This does not mean that a true Christian never commits sin. There's a little bit of a nuance uh, in the Greek language here that is missed in the translation into English. So if you're reading these verses and you think that, that it's saying that a child of God never sins, that's not at all John's point. Uh, these Greek verbs specifically commit there before the word sin is in, it's known as a present tense, which is, it shows an ongoing action. So he's saying, if the pattern of your life is sin, if you are ongoingly, unrepentingly living in sin, then you're not a child of God. He calls you a child of the devil. So we might say this, some, someone who lives in sin is not a child of God. A true Christian does not make a practice of sin. It's talking about the direction of your life, not that you'll never sin again, but that you won't live in continual, unrepentant sin. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Uh, saying in 1 John 3, look at verse 14, he says, We know, and again, this is a, a code way of talking about salvation, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So John says, you can know that you've been passed from death into life if you love the brethren. Again, this is a theme we saw in chapter 2, but he's, he's just hitting home again that true Christians love other Christians. And if you don't love other Christians, or if you go as far as to hate other Christians, you do not have eternal life abiding in you. A lack of love for God and a lack of love for his children reveals that you are not truly a child of God. First John 3, look at verse uh, 23. 
this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Now here's maybe some of what you would expect to find in a book about salvation, and specifically assurance of salvation, that that it's tied to a doctrinal belief. It's interesting that John doesn't mention this until chapter 3. But it is uh, a part of knowing that you're a child of God, what you believe about Christ. He says, if you believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, if you love one another, one another, and if you have the Holy Spirit, in verse 24, these are indicators that you are a child of God. Uh, if you'll flip over to chapter 4, verse 13, so 1 John 4, 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in him. And again, that's, that's John's poetic way of saying, here's how you can know that you're a Christian. And he in us, because he, has, he hath given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. So you can know if you're a true Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and if you believe that he's the Son of God. Uh, we'll see a continuation of this chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Now, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 is a little bit confusing wording there when it talks about Everyone that loveth him that begat loveth also him that is begotten of him. What, what the point that John's making here is true Christians love other Christians, true Christians love Christ, and true Christians love God. And, and we can know whether we're a true Christian in verse 2. We can know whether or not we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So our love is demonstrated by keeping the commandments of God. And in verse 3, there's an interesting point made at the end of the verse that his commandments are not grievous. Now, this is not actually a statement about the commandments of Christ not being difficult. Some of Christ's commands are difficult. Like, uh, if you look in the New Testament, some of the, the commands that were given are extremely difficult. The point is that if someone is truly a child of God, they will love God and they will keep his commandments and do so willingly. It's not that we just... Uh, we begrudgingly do what God says, like we keep the commandments, but we hate that we have to. That's not, that's not a true child of God. That, that's, that would be more like a Pharisee trying to uh, live in a, a legalistic lifestyle where we do these things because we have to. A true Christian loves God and keeps his commands, and it's not a burden to him. It, they do so joyfully. And we'll look, uh, I believe this is the last one, 1 John five eighteen. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So again, John points to personal holiness as an indication of one's salvation. He says in, in verse 19, there's a clear contrast between those born of God and the lost world that lives in wickedness. Again, in verse 18, this is the present tense form of the verb sin, so hamartia, it's not saying uh, if, you, if you sin one time, then you must not be a Christian. He's saying if you're living in an ongoing pattern of sin, then that betrays that you're not a child of God. True children of God do not live in wickedness like the rest of the world. There's a difference. 
So after, after looking through all of those verses, I think we can say that assurance of salvation is to be found in three primary areas. I've heard these categorized as a theological test, a moral test, and a social test. So the theological test is what do you believe about Christ? Do you believe that he's the Son of God and the Savior of the world? The moral test is, is your life primarily characterized by sin and wickedness or by holiness and keeping the commands of Christ? The social test is, do you love other Christians or do you hate other Christians? And so these are, these are indicators of whether or not we are a child of God. In other words, if we were to, to summarize this, we might say it like Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And if you flip that around, if, if somebody's not a new creature, if the old things haven't been passed away and new things haven't come, then he's not in Christ. There's an exclusive, there's an exclusive statement here that if any man be in Christ, if, some, if any person, there is no exception to this. If you are truly a child of God and you are truly saved, salvation transforms people. It changes sinners. And if you haven't experienced that change, according to 1 John, you haven't experienced true salvation. Now, a few things we need to say, and we're going to get into some clarifications, but the main point I want to stress here is don't try to be assured of salvation by looking back at the day you were spiritually born. And I'd like to use an analogy of your physical birth. How do you know that you were born physically? Do you remember it? I hope not. I don't think anyone in this room can remember the day that you were born. And yet none of us doubt it. We all know that we're born because we're alive right now. We can look in the mirror and see evidence that I must have been born because I'm alive. It's not about remembering some hazy memory 20 years ago. It's about your life right now. And so John's point in, in the book of First John is evaluate your life now. And the more that you see these indicators, the more you can have confidence that you are a Christian. Now, a few, a few clarifications uh, that I'd like to make to provide a little bit of balance here. Number one, we are not saved by doing good works. Good works are the result of salvation, not the basis of it. It's the fruit, not the root. Good works are the effect of salvation, not the cause. So I don't know if I could say that any clearer, but I just I want to make sure that nobody leaves here thinking that I'm saying, in order to be a child of God, you have to keep the commands of Christ, and you have to do all these good things, you have to love your brother. That's not what John says. Again, this is not a book uh, written to tell you how you can become a child of God. This is a book written to, to show you how to evaluate your life and find out if you already are a child of God. So good works are the evidence of salvation, but they don't come before salvation. You can't earn forgiveness of sin by doing good works. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I think, makes a, the distinction very clear. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith, and yet we're saved unto good works. And the good works are simply the evidence of the fact that we have been saved. Now, I, I, um, I have to hit my quota of quoting at least one Puritan per sermon. So here goes Francis Turretin. He wrote this in his Institutes of Elenctic Theology. And it's, uh, it's old English, so it's a little bit maybe hard to understand. But it, the, he's very precise in the way that he words this. He says, 
Works can be considered in three ways, either in reference to justification or sanctification or glorification. They are related to justification, not antecedently, efficiently, and meritoriously, but consequently and declaratively. They are related to sanctification constitutively because they constitute and promote it. They are related to glorification antecedently and ordinatively because they are related to it as the means to the end, yea, as the beginning to the completement, because grace is glory begun as glory is grace consummated. I can tell by the looks you're giving me that not everybody got that. So I'm going to go through it a little bit slower here. First of all, we need to uh, explain the, the, the three terms that he's using here, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And Brother Cole's talked about this a lot, but it's, it's an important thing to understand Scripture, to understand these three aspects of salvation. Justification is when someone is, when we speak of someone being saved or getting saved, we're usually talking about justification. That's when someone repents and they believe the gospel and God forgives their sin. He gives them the Holy Spirit and, and he declares them to be righteous. That's justification. So Turretin says that good works are related to justification, not antecedently, meaning they don't come before justification. You don't do good works in order to achieve justification. He says they're not efficiently or meritoriously. Again, he's saying you don't merit salvation. You don't earn salvation by good works. But they are related to justification consequently and declaratively. So if we've been justified, the consequence of that is good works. The evidence of that that comes afterward, that declares to those around us that we are a child of God, that is what good works, how good works relates to justification. Now, sanctification, and I'm not going to get into the distinction between progressive and positional sanctification, I'll spare you that, but Normally, when we talk about sanctification, what we mean is the ongoing work of God in the life of a Christian where he's changing them and, and making them holy. So if, if, um, if someone gets saved truly and they're justified, the next step is sanctification, and that continues throughout their life where God changes us and, and, and conforms us to the image of Christ. And so Turretin says that good works are related to sanctification constitutively. So they, they, they constitute it, basically that they're one and the same, that good works equals sanctification in a sense, that the holiness that God's working in us will be evidenced in that way. Glorification talks about the end of our life when we reach heaven, and that's the point where God makes us sinlessly perfect, and won't that be a great day? For right now, we struggle with sin. That's, that's part of sanctification. We'll get into this a little bit later, but sanctification, God is making us slowly more and more like him, and more and more like he wants us to be. Paul says he's making us to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's giving us the desires to do right, and he's causing us to actually uh, do right. If you and I are are living a righteous life, it's not because of us. That's the point. That is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And so glorification is the point where we reach heaven, where God, uh, in a moment, transforms us into the likeness of his Son. We will be perfect. And so good works, Turretin says, are related to glorification antecedently. They come before glorification and ordinatively because they are related to it as the means to the end. In other words, you cannot be glorified if you have not been sanctified. Don't think that you can live your whole life uh, as an unsaved person and just living in wickedness like the rest of the world. Don't think that you're going to be glorified. That gives evidence to the fact that you are not truly a Christian. 
So clarification number one, works are the result of genuine salvation, not the cause of it. Clarification number two, you do not lose your salvation if you fail to live righteously. Okay, so, so John's not saying if you're a Christian, but you live like the rest of the world, you're going to lose your, your, uh, your standing before God. You're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he says. Works demonstrate salvation. They do not maintain it or keep it. So in other words, <clears throat> uh, good works show whether or not we have been saved. We don't have to do good works in order to, to maintain our salvation. They, they simply are the evidence of the fact that God is at work in our life. So number one, works don't cause salvation. Number two, we don't lose our salvation if we're not doing good works, we're not living holy. Clarification number three, uh, salvation transforms lives, but it does so incompletely until we enter heaven. So this is a little bit of what we were talking about a minute ago with justification, sanctification, glorification, how when we're saved, God changes us. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean you're a completely new creature and there's no semblance of the old life in you. When we're changed and transformed when we get saved, that doesn't mean we become sinless and perfect. In other words, though a true Christian will not live in ongoing and unrepentant sin, neither will he live without any sin. All Christians sin after their salvation. Uh, if you look at 1 John chapter 1 while you're there, look at uh, chapter 1 verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John says in, in verses 5 through 7 that true Christians walk in light and not in darkness. But then he immediately clarifies and says, I don't mean you're going to walk perfectly in light and never sin. So although the whole point of the book of 1 John is that true salvation changes a person, John is quick to point out in the very first paragraph that he isn't saying it changes a person so that they live sinlessly. He says, if you think that you have no sin, and he's talking to Christians, if you say you don't have sin, you're deceiving yourself. Uh, I, want to, uh, I was going to have us turn there. We probably don't have time at this point. But Romans 7, uh, Paul gives a really interesting paragraph where he kind of opens up his personal life and talks about his struggle with sin. In Romans 7, he says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. He's saying, I, I don't want to do these things, and yet I end up doing them. And I want to do these good things, but then I, I just can't get myself to do it. Verse 17, Now then there's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is to present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! 
who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So Christians don't live in ongoing unrepentant sin, but they also don't live in ongoing uninterrupted righteousness. We do sin. We, we live in an ongoing struggle. And that's what Paul's saying here in Romans 7. Part of us wants to do right and part of us wants to do wrong. Paul says, when I want to do good, evil's present with me. He talks about the warring that goes on in his mind. How he wants to do right, but then how to actually perform that which is good, how to do it, he just can't seem to figure out. And this is, this is comforting to us, is it not? Because this describes our life. This describes me in the battle that goes on in my mind where I feel like I, I want to do right so badly and yet I continually fall. So, with these clarifications, you might be a little confused about what the point of 1 John is. Because how much of a change do I need to experience to know if I'm saved? How much love do I have to have for other people to know if I'm saved? I mean, I love a lot of Christians. I might love most Christians, but there's one or two. <laughs> I mean, I can't say I love all fellow Christians. Um, I, I can look back on my life since I was saved as a teenager and say clearly there was a change in my life. There's no doubt about it. If you knew me before I was saved, you would agree with that. However, there's also terrible sins I've committed since I've been saved. And so how much righteousness do we need to be confident in our salvation? If we all fall short in some way of these tests that John gives in the book of 1 John, does that mean we can't have assurance of salvation? I thought that was the whole point of the book. And yet, as we look at these tests, we all have to say, I might pass some of them sort of, but not with 100%. So does that mean we can't be confident of our salvation? I think the point is this, that the more we live according to the commands of God, and the more we love one another, and the more we are, our lives are characterized by righteousness, the more assurance we can have that we are God's child. So if you look at your life and you see, uh, you see a dramatic change from the time you were converted, and yes, there's times where you stumble, but overall you see that God is clearly at work in your life, then you can have confidence that you're saved. And the more you're growing and the more you're, uh, you're abounding spiritually, the more confidence you can have. But if you look at your life and you honestly have to say, I'm really no different now than I ever was, and I don't have spiritual desires, I don't live for God, then you shouldn't have confidence that you're a Christian. Now, I do want to caution here that I think it's wise to take a broad view of your life. Don't narrow in on one little period of time like today or this week. Take a broader view of your life, okay? Uh, I think a good example of this is Peter. As far as I can tell, Peter was a Christian, at least by Matthew 16. This is where, uh, where Peter declares, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And, and Jesus tells Peter that flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe at that point, at least, if not before, he was a Christian. But think of all the things that Peter did after that point. In Matthew 26, Peter denies Jesus three times. He, he curses and swears and says he doesn't even know who Jesus is. And as far as I can tell, he did that as a saved man. Uh, Peter abandoned the call of God in his life, and in John 21, he went back to fishing. You remember when Jesus initially reached Peter, he said, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. I want you to leave fishing, and I want you to, to join me in this ministry. And after Christ's resurrection... After Peter had seen the risen Christ, he abandoned his call to ministry and went back to fishing. 
And as far as I can tell, he was a saved man when he did that. In Acts chapter 10, there's a story where, where Jesus shows Peter some unclean animals according to the, the Jewish laws, and he, t- he tells Peter to eat them. And Peter says no. He tells Jesus no three times. And it's funny, the way he words it, he actually says, not so, Lord, which is sort of like saying, no, master. It's kind of an oxymoron. You're calling a master, and yet you're refusing to do what he tells you. And I believe at this point, Peter was a saved man. While he was literally looking Jesus in the face and saying, no, I'm not going to do what you just told me. Galatians 2, Paul talks about Peter and uh, how Peter would hang out with Gentiles unless there were certain Jews around, and then uh, he would refuse to be seen with them. Paul says he was acting hypocritically, and in this passage, uh, Paul, Paul says that he withstood Peter to the face, so he got in Peter's face and basically told him, knock it off. And at this point, I believe it's very clear Peter was a Christian. So don't think that just because you're a mess sometimes that you're not a Christian. Peter was a mess sometimes long after his conversion. But taking a broad view of Peter's life, we have to say clearly there was a change. Uh, He spent most of his life preaching the gospel. He was imprisoned and beaten for the cause of Christ. He wrote two books of the New Testament and he died as a martyr. If you take a broader look at Peter's life, there was a transformation that took place. But if you narrow in on specific days, there were certainly days in Peter's life where he did not act like a Christian. So my my encouragement to you is you might be right now at one of the bitter weeping moments of your life. Where You remember where Peter denies Christ and when he realizes what he's done, he says, the text says in Matthew 26, he went out and wept bitterly. After committing this terrible sin, he's repentant and remorseful and he hates the fact that he did it. And that's how a a true Christian feels about his sin. We sin, we all sin, but true Christians hate their sin. So if you find yourself falling, but you hate the fact that you sin, you hate the fact that you struggle with sin, that's actually a good indication that you are indeed a Christian. So my application today is going to be the same for everybody. If if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, uh, if you are not a Christian, I, I would encourage you to place your faith in Christ and repent of sin. We've looked at these evidences of salvation, and maybe as you've looked at these, you're starting to doubt whether or not you are saved. And I think, in part, that is perhaps a, a point of First John. As much as it gives assurance to those who are saved, it has the opposite effect on those who aren't. It, it shows and puts a, a floodlight on your life and shows that you may not be a child of God. So if after evaluating your life, you feel like, I don't love God's people very much, and I don't live any different from the rest of the world, and I I don't live in holiness, Jesus offers salvation to you. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the Bible says. Christ died for the ungodly, and if that sounds like you, you're just the type of person Jesus came to save. So believe in Christ, repent of your sin. If you are a Christian and you're in that bitter weeping stage, where you just denied Christ, you just did something terrible, and you hate the fact that you've done it, then, then ask for forgiveness and repent. That's, again, in First John, and I don't know if you're still there in First John chapter 1, but in verse 9, after John says, those who are truly saved walk in light and not in darkness, but we still have sin, there, there's still sin in us. If you say that you don't have sin, you're a liar. He says in verse 9 that if you have those sins, Confess them and forsake them, and, and Jesus will, he's faithful and just to forgive you. So don't think that, uh, again, this is why one of the clarifications I mentioned earlier is important. We don't lose our salvation because we sin. 
So don't think that because you've sinned or you sinned terribly that God can't forgive you now. That, that you're a Christian, you did something awful, and, yet, and, and now you're beyond God's grace. If God could, could forgive you when you were his enemy, he can forgive you now that you're his child. He's faithful and just to forgive, and, and God always forgives repentant sinners. So whether you're a Christian or not, I would encourage you to evaluate your life and look for those areas where we are in need of repentance. I think most all Christians are in need of repentance all, pretty much all the time. Most of us, if we take a good look at our lives, we can see areas of weakness and areas where we're struggling with sin. That's certainly true in my life. And if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, I can assure you that you're going to continue to struggle if you don't repent of known sin. Uh, Second Peter talks about adding to our faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, and brotherly kindness and charity. And then in verse 8 he says, If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You can be a Christian, you can have your, your sins forgiven, and yet forget it not realize it. And, I, and, and the answer in Second Peter, the way that that happens is if you're not abounding in those graces. If you don't find yourself growing spiritually and abounding in the work of God in your life, you're not going to feel like a Christian. When I struggled with salvation, um, specifically as a teenager, young teenager, it was, looking back, it's very clear to me, it's because I wasn't saved. But even since my, my salvation, there have been moments where I've wondered, where I've looked at my life and I felt like there's just no way a Christian would do that. And yet, we can be encouraged by the example of people like Peter that we're all a mess. We're all a work in progress. And God's faithful and just to forgive the repentant sinner, whether you're a Christian or not. So you can be blind, you can be unable to see afar off, you can struggle with assurance of salvation if you're not growing in faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. But if these things are in you and abounding, or if you're growing spiritually, you'll have more confidence that you are a child of God. So if you're unsure of your salvation, I would encourage you to surrender your life to Christ. Start living for Him. And as you grow spiritually, you will grow in your assurance. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.